to Isaiah 59.9. I was going to try to do chapter 60 as well, but there's such a transition um, in, the, in the text that uh, I figured we would handle 59 independently. And 59 actually fits in many other places uh, in the scriptures, especially as uh, Paul borrows from Isaiah 59, both in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 11. So it gets quite a bit of attention that way, but then prophetically, in eschatology, it, it, it fits in well with other uh, chapters of the Old Testament <clears throat> and uh, with Revelation and stuff. But, you know, I'm, I'm coming upon Matthew 24 and 25, and so I figured I'd save some of that for there. And uh, if things progress with Israel, we may be talking more about um, Ezekiel 38 and 39, um, which would be troubling and encouraging at the same time. So, uh, just by way of introduction, um, you know, in the last days, when we look at the scriptures in regard to Israel, they're never presented initially as a righteous nation, and that because of their righteousness, you know, God will rescue them from her enemies, and then, um, you know, redeem them. Uh, But Israel, in, in, in eschatology of the Bible, She's always initially rebellious. She's always in need of being saved spiritually because she's completely out of line and uh, in rebellion against God. And then she's always in trouble from her enemies. So she needs to be saved spiritually and she needs to be rescued uh, nationally, physically. And uh, this chapter gets into all that. And uh, so in the last days, we could say that Israel is always set uh, in a secular context. Secular is not what we often think of as, well, I'm not a pastor or a missionary, so I have a secular job. That is a misuse of that concept. Uh, secular means of this world. Now, <clears throat> we could say, oh, well, it's of this world and not heaven. No, of this world in the idea of the world that is governed by Satan. It's, it's within the sphere of his, his dominion. Uh, he's called the God of this age. Uh, that's of this world. Uh, so Israel is set in an of-this-worldly context. They're a part of it. They're not, they're not in step with God. They're in rebellion against him. They're unbelieving, and, uh, and they're immoral. And then, of course, prior to the redemption, um, she is surrounded by her enemies. She's under attack, and the, it provokes God's pity uh, for them, and it provokes his wrath against the enemy. And so God is going to rescue her spiritually and physically. And Isaiah 59 uh, presents both of these realities. Um, Her sin is is the discussion in the first half of the prophecy. And in the second half is the judgment of her enemies. And then the last two verses conclude with uh, their overall salvation. All right? How's that for an outline? Okay, pretty simple. So let's go ahead and read the chapter. Uh, If you would, please stand up. We'll read God's word. You'll recognize some verses in here. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. 
They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hand, hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting, and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there's no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all groan like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgression and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly, he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your descendants nor from the mouth of your descendants. Descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. And um, Lord, only you can... um, Describe to us the events that will unfold in the future. All of it's in your hand, just as our lives are. And so, Lord, I pray that um, you would teach us, you would encourage us. And for many of us, as we've studied eschatology and looked at the, the evidence uh, that concerns Israel throughout the scriptures, Lord, that more of the pieces would come together. And um, the fact that you keep your word, your promises, your covenant, Lord, again, we would be encouraged by it. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. All right. Well, turn back, if you would, to verse 1 and 2. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have 
hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So it's not that God can't help. It's not that he can't hear. It's not him, Isaiah says. It's you. It's you. It's your iniquities and it's your sins. And the list is quite extensive uh, from verse 3 through 8. I'm not going to read those verses to you again, but we'll just uh, itemize the things that God is accusing them of. He accuses them of murder, of lies, of perverse speaking. Uh, He says that as a society, as a culture, they do not pursue justice. Uh, Truth is not endorsed. People, he says, are undiscerning. They invent evil. They conspire against one another. They're violent. They're quick to participate in evil. And they conceive evil in their hearts. That's a lot to take in, isn't it? Uh, That was the condition that he's speaking to. And so God says, because of you, uh, I've hidden my face. It's because of what you've done, what you're doing, um, that I won't hear you. And, uh, you know, if we examine the, the moral condition of Israel today, uh, we find that uh, the majority of Israelites are secular. That's a, a statistic that, that Israel puts out. That, you know, we think of the land of Israel, the, the land of the Bible, that uh, there's these religious people there. They're at least religious. Maybe a false religion or whatever, but the majority of all Jews are secular. They don't believe in the God of their fathers, uh, the God of the Bible. And then when you look at the Jewish Orthodox or the ultra-Orthodox, um, and you examine what it is they believe, they're way off base from the Old Testament, and they're so caught up in the Talmud and the traditions of the Jews that very little uh, uh, of the scriptures is actually there in the scriptures. There's remnants of it, but it's mostly just like in the New Testament when um, you know, it was about what a rabbi said, about how a rabbi interpreted the scriptures, and they're just out there in some of the things that they believe. Uh, most uh, Israelis, like Americans, believe that people have moral autonomy, which always leads to moral relativism. That, you know, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. They treat morality like, um, like Greg Kokel talks about, like ice cream. Uh, this is your preference. Uh, and they treat morality like preference. Uh, it's, it's very scary. Uh, the majority of all of Israel is pro-abortion, even among the ultra-Orthodox. Um, you, you can read about the rabbis bantering uh, over what God meant about this passage and this passage. And... Um, Israel, you've heard me say this before, they lead the world in fetal stem cell research so um, of aborted fetuses, so they experiment uh, on all this stuff. They're the leaders. <clears throat> Even though we know that uh, your own stem cells uh, for treatment are the best stem cells, so this uh, studying and, and experimenting on babies is, is weird and morbid. Um, Israel celebrates uh, homosexuality and fornication. They have the largest gay pride parade in the, on the planet. And this is a very tiny, tiny nation. Uh, and yet they have the largest parade in the world. So, you know, Israel is not a moral people today. Uh, but something that is interesting is when you hear them talk about the land of Israel and what they expect from it, they want all that God has promised to them in the scriptures, but they give him no regard. Okay? They want their land, they want God's blessing, uh, but they don't currently want God. And uh, so God is currently withholding himself from them. 
okay? They're in the land, at least some of the land that God gave them, but they're not enjoying God, and they're not enjoying his best for them in that land, okay? And uh, since, you know, the Second World War, uh, the Jews have considered their circumstances, and they've said, where is God? Where is he? Uh, Does he not see? Does he not hear? Just as we see in the text, okay? But God would respond to them and say, your iniquities, your unbelief, it's separated you from me, your sins, uh, they've hidden my face from you so that I I cannot hear you. Uh, Of course, Israel's not the only one that does that, right? Uh, It's so common, uh, especially as you meet with people, you disciple them, you counsel them. um, Their lives are marked with immorality, immoral decisions, unbelief, and they can't figure out why God doesn't speak to them Uh, why he doesn't work on their behalf. And then you listen to their story, and you can say with great confidence, well, here's why. Uh, You're unrepentant. Uh, You're living a lifestyle that's in contradiction to his word. And uh, it's not that God is weak. It's not that he's deaf. He's the sovereign king of the universe. He can do whatever he pleases. But your sin does not please him. And so he has stopped his ears until you repent. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Um, David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. But if we're active in iniquity uh, in our lives, God certainly won't hear us. We even mentioned uh, the text in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, a husband that mistreats his wife. God says, I won't listen to you. Uh, I won't answer your prayers. I won't hear from you. And uh, it's kind of an interesting way to evaluate your relationship with God. Husbands, it depends on your relationship with your wife. Regarding iniquity. Yeah, it's an interesting mentality. But that's what Israel was expecting. In verse 5 through 6, Isaiah goes on, but he uh, begins to speak a little differently. He says that the people of Judah are like vipers who reproduce that which is deadly. And he says, and they spin the spider's web for a garment, as if spider's web could actually cover and conceal what is under it. Uh, A spider web might be Um, what you would expect a prostitute to wear. And if you saw her in that, um, you wouldn't be confused about what kind of work she does, right? Just like God is saying here, you can't cover your works with spider webs. You can't conceal the truth about yourself. Uh, All of their works were known to God. Their iniquity is plain to see. So Isaiah says this. He says, therefore, um, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Crazy. So, uh, now, you notice here that Isaiah has included himself, in some sense, the, the, uh, the, the, the plural pronoun there, us, we. And he's saying that in an unjust society, there are many victims. Okay? In the end, no one escapes from evil, even the evil. The people who commit injustice eventually end up being the victims of evil, of their injustice. Those who try to live godly they get caught um, you know, in the middle of evil, and then they're abused. 
as you'll talk about later, those who stand for righteousness, he says they become a target, okay? They become prey. So here, Isaiah is identifying uh, with two groups here. Uh, he identifies with those who try to live godly in verse 9 through 11, and then he identifies himself with his nation that is collectively sinful in verse 12 through 13. So in verse 9 through 11, the, the moral condition of the culture, he says, is compared to darkness. I mean, we all understand that figure of speech, right? It's dark. It's dark. It's bad. Where those oppressed by evil, he says, they search for justice and righteousness like a blind person that tries to find a wall to stabilize themselves, but instead they just stumble like those who try to walk around at twilight. Have you ever noticed that twilight, you see the sky just fine, and your eyes adjust to it, and then you look on the ground, you can see nothing but black. So every obstacle, everything to trip on is there, and you can't see it. He says we, it's, we trip in the middle of the day as if it were twilight. It's bad. And so like the bear, he says, they groan for justice, and like the dove, they mourn their plight because everything good is beyond their reach. What a hopeless situation. Now, do you think this moral condition occurred overnight in Israel? It doesn't happen that way, does it? It's something that's eroded. It's something that occurs bit by bit over time. Uh, justice, truth, all those things are eroded. You've often heard people use the, the frog in the pot illustration, that you, you put the frog in you know, cold water on the, the burner, you turn the burner on and it slowly, and, and it just stays in there until the water gets so hot that it kills it. It's gradual, you get used to it, the sensory adaption, uh, until it's too late. And so as we see in the history of Israel, in, in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, there's this slowly erosion of good things, and there's this steady picking up of evil things, of worthless things. And uh, every time you remove something good, the vacuum fills it in with something bad. And uh, so everything's rotting away. It's a lack of repentance. And then they fall through what is rotten. And then it's like suddenly, you're like, where did justice go? How many of you guys were wondering that um, in the last couple of years in America? It's like, what happened? How did we get here? Everything's drowning in hopelessness. It's all the consequences of, of ignoring God and his word. And I would say, and maybe it's part of my personality, but this is what happens everywhere when good men do nothing. Uh, when they behave politely uh, in the face of evil and injustice. When they make concessions. When they make small compromises under the appearance of diplomacy. I hate that. But when we look at Isaiah, we look at the prophets and the apostles, we look at the example of Jesus, they show that there's just no negotiating with evil. We can negotiate a lot of things in life, amen? But when it comes to evil, there's just, there's just no negotiating. And so generation after generation, good men just allowed a little bit of garbage in, and they set aside things that were good, and it just continued from generation to generation until people were like, well, what happened? How do we get to this place? Evil must be confronted. It, it has to be opposed, okay? Truth must be spoken, as Jesus would say, from the rooftops and the highways and the byways, okay? There's no truth like the gospel. Israel, of course, didn't have the gospel, but it, in every part of society, they failed to uphold the covenant of God. And then as they did that, moral darkness crept into the culture, and then they suffered for it. You, uh, the boys, the girl, my kids and I, we're going through the book of Judges right now in the morning, 
So what I have them do is I have them read a chapter, and, uh, and then I read the chapter to them in more animated form, and then <clears throat> we, we talk about the chapter, and uh, I assign the next chapter, and one of the boys says, we already read this. Because every chapter that starts a new story says, and Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So they thought that we just read that. Well, we'd read that phrase already, but it's a different story. But Israel's up to the same old thing, right? They spent the last 15 years, 20 years or whatever, whittling away at morality, whittling away at the faith, until they did evil so bad in the sight of the Lord that he turned them over to one of the ungodly, wicked kings uh, that surrounded Israel. This is crazy. How did we get here? And, uh, and how, did, you know, how did Gideon wind up threshing wheat in a wine press? How does that happen? You know, it's just crazy. Yeah. So I, I firmly believe that it's always a good time to be vocal. It's always a good time to speak winsomely. You know, we're not allowed to use the same tactics as the world. We could say secular tactics, the, the ideology of the left, of, of BLM, of, of the, the LGBTQ community, Antifa. But we are commanded to speak. We're commanded. You know, as Paul said, we believe and therefore we speak, 2 Corinthians 4.13. He's saying that the product of me believing the message, the truth about the human condition, man's plight, the, the, the gospel of life, I believe all this stuff. And therefore, he says, I speak. I can't keep my mouth shut. You know, Jeremiah told the Lord, I, if I say this, I'm going to be in trouble with everybody. But because he believed the message, because it was necessary for the life of Israel, and it was burning within him, he had to speak. It's the product of true faith. You have to speak. You can't remain silent in the midst of evil. Yeah. And what I have always think, I've always thought is interesting is that it's the spoken word and the written word that God has ordained to change the world. He's ordained it. So it, it's not how we might think that he would change things. But he's ordained it to be a certain way, to be spoken, to be written. I love it. You know, we know as evangelicals that the world will never be won over completely. It's just not going to happen. But we can, one by one, snatch people from the fire. And by doing that, by speaking, by writing, by communicating, you know, we can, we can slow the tide of dissipation, of, of immorality and evil. We've seen it throughout church history, haven't we? You look at how the early church changed the Roman Empire. You know, we, it was through Christianity that, that women were elevated, that slavery almost vanished, that infanticide almost came to an end, changes in the way that the government treated its people. The church did that. The church did that. Uh, we look at how it affected Europe. Um, it's because of the, 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 the Judeo-Christian creed that there's hospitals and schools. Those weren't things that came into the world through Hinduism or Islam or any other faith. It, we are responsible for those things. Of course, whenever government takes anything over, it destroys it and makes it secular, but that they're there, the ethic behind many of those things, it's because of us. Uh, we've changed the world, we've changed culture, and we've done it for the good. We need to keep doing it. You know, if the Lord tarries, um, that would be a bummer, by the way. But if he tarries, according to his own decision, it would be to the benefit of our children and our grandchildren if we spoke, if we affected the culture. We want to do it primarily, ultimately for the glory of God, for the salvation of other people. 
But raise your hand if you want to pass on a worse world to your kids. Put my hand down. There's so many good reasons to preach the gospel, to get involved in people's lives. It's the right thing to do. It's obedience to the commission. And, you know, in this whole context, um, you know, coming from uh, kind of a denominational culture, there's this push for conversions, there's a push for baptisms. And you always feel this pressure. There's a, there's a push for attendance in all of that. Every elders meeting I went to I, had to, I had to report on the attendance of my youth group. I hated it. And then every uh, annual meeting, I had to report on baptisms, conversions, and the rest. And it just, I hated it. And when you look at the scriptures, that's not how faithfulness is measured. Never. Faithfulness is always measured by faithfulness. God doesn't tell us to change the culture. He tells us to preach to the culture. So faithfulness is measured by preaching. Understand? We're not responsible for converting people. We're not responsible for changing their lives. We believe the message does that. But we're responsible to communicate truth, the gospel, love, and the rest. So the, the idea that we have this burden to reach the lost is unbiblical. We, we have a responsibility to preach. Now, whether they're reached or not is on them. I can't, I can't force people to convert. Amen? But we can preach, and we believe that it'll have an effect on things. So just preach. Don't worry about the pressure. Especially don't worry about what people think about you. You're not that important. Okay, yeah. I'm glad I'll never have to answer for the condition of our culture. Yeah. So from here, Isaiah identifies with his nation. And it's very similar, uh, just not as long as in Daniel chapter 9. You remember Daniel goes before the Lord and he has this really long prayer. And he's identifying with his nation. Uh, So here he says, our transgressions are multiplied before you. Speaking as a nation. Uh, And our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Now, Isaiah, uh, though not sinless, he wasn't guilty of the evils within his culture. Amen? He's not guilty of those things. Uh, But he was an Israelite. So he says, we, we do the same thing. You know, when we speak of the great evils of the West, uh, we say us, the West, we're guilty of this, right? Uh, we're not identifying with those sins individually, hopefully. Again, not that we're sinless, but in the, the, we could say that in the hierarchy of sins, uh, we're not personally culpable to that degree. And here in these verses, Isaiah clearly explains Uh, that the sins of the nation just aren't against one another. It's not like that's what our sins are confined to, but but everything is a sin against heaven. It's an offense to him. It's all ultimately against God. And and he says here that sins are multiplied before him. What a dreadful thought, that the sins of the unredeemed are constantly being multiplied before God. It's stockpiled before the judgment seat of God, a complete record of iniquity is filed away, and it's there with easy access on the day of judgment for God to pull out, because there's going to be no justification on the day of judgment for the wicked. Paul says that the wicked are treasuring up for themselves wrath on the day of wrath. That's crazy, when God will punish all evil. So he's going to do that collectively, both to Israel and everyone else, but because God is in covenant with Israel, and because he is holy, he's going to judge his people, uh, whether judge them for good in rewarding them 
or he'll judge them for evil, disciplining them for their sin. And uh, here, uh, according to this prophecy, Israel is ripe for judgment. So these are the sins of Israel. Um, and as the final verses indicate, this is going to be Israel, their, con- their moral condition in the last days. They will be secular, they'll be worldly and in rebellion to God. But as we said earlier, they're also going to be in conflict with their neighbors. Are they in conflict with their neighbors? He says, justice is turned back, all righteousness stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. So the context reveals that he's talking about the sins of their oppressors, those who are going to mistreat Israel in the final days of world history. So we could say that he's speaking in the prophetic present. He's looking to the future regarding the treatment of Israel at the last time. He says, justice, righteousness, truth, and equity, all going to be forsaken. And if anyone departs from evil to embrace these virtues, he says, they become hunted. They become prey. How relevant is that? He says, truth will fall in the streets. What an interesting place for truth to fall. I can't read that without being reminded of the last few years as we had, you know, the BLM riots over George Floyd. Uh, Now we have the demonstrations uh, all over the globe in favor of Hamas. It's all in the streets. It's all in the streets. Justice was, justice is, it's, it's being pushed away by their rhetoric and the propaganda, righteousness, uh, it's not even in their motives. You know, we say, well, they, they intended good. Well, that's not even their intention anymore. Truth is trampled on. Equity is just completely excluded. And then those who stand for truth, they're attacked. They're attacked, okay? Uh, falsehood in the media is received as truth. Uh, wasn't it Denzel Washington said that um, if, you, if you don't read the news or watch the news, you're uninformed? But if you watch the news, you're misinformed? Wasn't that Denzel that said that? Yeah. You don't want to be irresponsible and not pay attention, but then when you listen to their garbage, you might as well not be paying attention, but you are being indoctrinated. Uh, Evil is presented as good, and and, uh, good is reduced to evil. Uh, Injustice is justified. You know, Uh, inequity is proclaimed as equitable. Uh, Racism uh, is excused for righteousness. The wrong people were, and they are being punished. I look at it and I think, gosh, Jezebel once again has hired her false witnesses and condemned the innocent, while criminals walk or the criminals are made out to be martyrs. In all of this, uh, we've seen communities that have risen to the surface who celebrate criminals and they make heroes out of them. It's very strange. Criminal worship. None of it comes by surprise, but as as I've been watching this unfold, um, I've been frustrated with those that should have been discerning with their voices and their leadership, should have been leading with courage. They were caught up in artificial guilt, sympathizing with evil, and what it did is it left countless sheep floundering between what they knew intuitively, but they lacked the support to stand. So frustrating. And those who did stand were marked as racist, as fascists, as Nazis, as hate mongers, You know, similar to the apostles and prophets of old, they became a target of hate for the sake of the truth. You know, in the last, you know, so many years with the the radical uh, gender 
ideology, with the homosexual agenda, with the, the race baiting, and trying to start race wars, all of this stuff. You know, moral evil is in, in every form around us. It's just, it's just coming out of the woodwork. You know, of course, we know theologically that it's always in the heart of man. It's lying beneath the surface, but at this moment, uh, there's nothing lurking. It's just out. It's just out. The things that people are saying, it, it's just almost unbelievable what they're saying. Looking at this image of a, uh, a nurse, a male nurse in Norway, and he's, there's a lot of Jews in Norway, and he's, he's showing his biceps, he's flexing, and it says Hamas. Imagine being a Jew under his care. Just frightening, frightening. And you've seen all these people come out and make statements about Hamas or anti-Israel. And uh, this, this one Arab lady actually worked for a Jewish company. She didn't know. And she was making that claim from the river to the sea, which is a, a slogan of Islam that means to completely exterminate the Jews. So she got fired. Yeah. But the hateful things, uh, Angelie Jolie, however you say her name, uh, whatever her name is, uh, just saying hateful things that are completely uninformed. But because she's Hollywood, people will trip over themselves to listen. You know, but just crazy, crazy stuff. This kind of evil is, it will be justified when it comes to Israel in the last days. But the question is, what is going to be the end of all that in those days? Of which Isaiah says, the Lord is displeased. He... God saw that there was no man. We've got a problem right now with that. Good men. And wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. So the time is coming, and I think that it's sooner than later that there will be, for Israel, no man, as it were, no intercessor. Collectively, there just won't be people to stand up in the face of of moral evil. No one to stand with Israel, or nobody will be able to stand with Israel. So, at that time, the Lord will stand for Israel in perfect uh, harmony with his promises to them. Not because they'll be righteous, not because they'll be faithful to the covenant, but purely because God is the one that's faithful to his covenant. And they're the people of his covenant. On that day, it says God will put his armor on. Now, don't confuse with this with the armor of God from Ephesians because there's some clothing in here, some articles that we don't put on. You see it there. Uh, it's, it's the clothing of vengeance. It's a cloak of zeal. This is speaking of wrath. He's coming in his anger. Toward who? He says, according to their deeds... Accordingly, he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The enemies of Israel in the last day will be the enemies of God. They're going to suffer his fury, it says, his recompense. He says that Israel's enemies on that day will consist of the coastlands, which, which includes the islands of the Mediterranean, uh, everyone to the west of Jerusalem. Now, all prophecy, mind you, is Jerusalem-centric. Everything is to it and 
going out from it, uh, and all to the east. <clears throat> now, other scriptures that we've looked at up to this point that also talks about the north and the south. Okay, so Israel's enemies are going to be on absolutely every side of them. Every side. You ever seen, I mean, you look at a map of that part of the world, and when, it's, when you can see you know, that half of the globe, um, you can barely see Israel. It's the size of Rhode Island. It's just so tiny. And they're called land grabbers. Very interesting. Their enemies are on every side. It'll be that way in the end. And then God it says that he's going to come up against them uh, like a flood that had been penned up. So that when the dam breaks, his fury will flood those nations and he will permanently subdue them. We're going to visit that more graphically in chapter 63 of Isaiah. But as we said, something else will happen during this demonstration of God's righteous judgment. He says, the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children, and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. He means business, doesn't he? Yeah. So this time around, the Redeemer, of course, this is Messiah, he will not come out of Zion as he did when he was born of a virgin. At the second coming, he's going to come to Zion. He's going to return there. Um, he will come from Zion in the sense of his human origin when he returns, but he's going to come to them from heaven. And what's interesting is Paul quotes this passage in part in Romans 11, verse 26 and 27, and he's speaking of the future salvation of ethnic Israel. Okay? Now, notice that all of this is related to God's covenant with them. It's all covenantal. Now, he's not referring to the covenant made with Israel at Sinai. He's referring back to the covenant made with Abraham. Okay? Those who repent, just as Romans 11 teaches, they will perpetually have the Spirit of God upon them. Now, we have never seen that, right? We've never seen that. And it says, they and all generations that follow will speak the word of God. This, this won't be true of many generations, but from that time forever, and then it, it's followed up with, says the Lord. This is guaranteed. This is, God's covenant promise stands. So look at this. After quoting this passage from Isaiah, Paul says, concerning the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, gifts and calling of God, it says, Israel, mine elect, mine elect. That's God's calling upon them. It's irrevocable. He says, for as you Gentiles were once disobedient to God, you have now obtained mercy through their, that's Israel's disobedience, even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. This is very interesting. So during this current period of time that we're in, some people call it the church age, the time of the Gentiles, whatever. Uh, Israel, during this time, is collectively in spiritual blindness. It says, Paul says that in just a few verses before this. 
They're in rebellion. He says they're under divine chastisement. And at this time, while they're under divine chastisement, God is offering salvation to the Gentile world. But the time is coming, as verse 25 says, that after the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, God then will send the Redeemer into Zion, and he will remove their blindness. He says, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and then all Israel will be saved. So in in the last days, right when Israel seems to be the farthest away they can get from God, God will bring them close. God promises to redeem Israel, his elect, according to his covenant promise. This is so great. After all this time, you know, 2,000 years since they rejected Messiah, God has not wavered on his promises. And as soon as the, the time comes, just as Jesus said, as appointed by my Father, he will return, he will take vengeance on Israel's enemies. Through the process of that, he will bring them to repentance and he will save them. So I don't know how long you've been keeping promises, but God has been keeping promises to Israel for thousands of years. He's going to bring it all full circle, redeem them, because he cannot waver in his promises. So whatever promise he's made to you in his word, it's yours. It's yours. Because he keeps his promises to Israel, he will keep his promises to you. Amen. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray.